here we are today in John chapter 2. And so last week you got full blast Brian Freeman with the history and the background. And thank you for coming back uh, for, for the repeat customers here. And so today we're really going to get into the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so let's recap where we're at with uh, the Gospel of John. So only the Gospel of Luke records Jesus' birth and his childhood to a large degree. Um, the other Gospels tend to jump right in as Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry. <clears throat> now, John, the author of John, we talked last week, wrote a very different Gospel than the other three, which we call the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to have a lot of similar material. They tend to have a similar focus, which is let's talk about the life of Christ. They tend to be autobiographical to a certain extent to talk about who Christ was and why he came to earth. The author of John is trying to make the case to respond to events that are happening later in the first century, where he is trying to argue that Christ is God. And Christ is this, uh, you know, essentially God himself who is appearing in human form, who has always existed since time eternal. He is not a created being. Jesus isn't created. He didn't, God didn't just snap his fingers and Jesus came into existence. The author of John is trying to make the case that Jesus has always existed, certainly before the earth was created. And uh, we got into the logos, we got into some Greek philosophy, probably more than you wanted to hear. But today we're going to talk about his public ministry. And so <clears throat> I've shown you my timeline here uh, to kind of uh, level set where we're at. So where are we? Here, 100 BC to 1 BC, morning, to 100 AD. So that's where we're at. We're going to talk today about how and why we think we're somewhere around 30 AD today for Jesus' public ministry to start. And there's a little bit of clues in here that we'll talk about. <clears throat> we're also going to talk about the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, which is very important. So here's our map of Israel. Here's the region of Judea. Jerusalem is the capital of that, uh, that district, that area. Here's Galilee in the north. And we have, if you can't read it, here's the Sea of Tiberias. That was a clue last week as to when John was written. No one referred to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias until the late first century. <clears throat> and if you were to refer, you know, in the late first century to the Sea of Galilee, no one would know what the heck you were talking about. This is a clue as to when John was written. <clears throat> so here we have the Sea of Tiberias. At the very top, we have Capernaum, where Jesus lived for a while. Nazareth, where he uh, grew up. And Cana, which will be the site of our first sign or miracle today that we'll talk about. Okay. Why don't we go ahead and we're just going to actually jump right in to John chapter 2 and we'll get going here. And I think we're going to read 1 through 11. Two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his followers were also invited to the wedding. When all the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus answered, dear woman, why come to me? My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. In that place there were six stone water jars that the Jews used in their washing ceremony. Each jar held about 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled the jars to the top. Then he said to them, Now take out some, take some out and give it to the master of the feast. So they took the water to the master. When he tasted it, the water had become wine. He did not know where the wine came from, but the servants who had brought the water knew. The master of the wedding called the bridegroom and said to him, People always serve the best wine first. Later, after the guests have been drinking a while, they serve the cheaper wine. But you have saved the best wine until now. 
So in Cana of Galilee, Jesus did his first miracle. There he showed his glory and his followers believed in him. So let's just first start off by acknowledging the obvious, which is first, according to the author of John, this was Jesus' very first miracle, okay? The very first miracle he chose to perform was not healing a blind man. It was not um, <clears throat> healing a lame, crippled person that they could walk. It wasn't healing a person of leprosy. It wasn't raising someone from the dead. His very first miracle was what would appear on its surface to be a very mundane or trivial magic trick. I'm going to turn water into wine. So. <clears throat> I'm going to start right off with that. Let's jump right into that. What, for you, do you think is the significance of Jesus' first miracle being turning water into wine? Showing how things can be changed. Okay. Oh, see, this is why I love you, Lauren. You go right to it. You, you just skip the surface stuff. Let's talk about this significance. One guy asked the other guy, if you believe that Jesus turned water into wine, huh? and the other guy said, I don't know, but he turned beer into furniture. Say it again. He turned what? Beer into furniture. In other words, the guy quit drinking and paid a lot of furniture instead of beer. <laughs> okay. That's one way to look at it. <coughs> Let's talk about that. So you said it proves, and I want to say exactly what you said. It said it proves Jesus can change things. Now, in this case, what, what exactly happened? How do you get wine? Maybe that's a, let's back up. How do, how, if you wanted to make wine, how would you go about that process? <clears throat> and I don't mean going to Hy-Vee. grapes. Okay, so there's a physical process. You start with fruit, something with sugar in it, right? <clears throat> Good morning. Wine making. Here, you never knew that you would be a enologist. <laughs> but here you are. This is the weirdness of my class. Winemaking. Okay, you start with sugar. And usually sugar in the form of crushed fruit. Okay? Uh, you can make wine out of pretty much anything with sugar in it. Honey, which you can turn into mead. Um, grapes into wine. Barley into beer. So on and so forth. But you start with sugar. But then there's a very important process. You don't just just start with sugar and, you know, wave a magic wand. What do you have to do to that sugar? Yes. You have to add yeast. What is yeast? I don't mean the scientific definition. I mean, what is yeast in general? Is it a thing? It's a, yeah, it exists. It's a living thing. It's a living thing. Add yeast, which is alive. Yeast is alive. I'm sorry, um, but when you make bread and you go to the store and you buy that packet of yeast to make bread, that is not dead. That is not sand. <laughs> that is not dust. That is a living thing. It's quiescent. It's, it's kind of asleep or, or hibernating, if you want to think of it that way. Once you add it to the mix and you warm it up and you add some water and it's got that, you know, some of the sugar in there that it starts to eat, it becomes alive. It wakes up. Once the yeast comes to life, then in the absence, okay, this is the science, in the absence of, of oxygen, <coughs> um, anoxic, meaning you don't want any oxygen, those yeast will convert sugar into ethyl alcohol, which is the alcohol that makes us drunk, right? Inebriated, right? <clears throat> they convert sugar into alcohol, the kind you can drink. There's many kinds, but this is ethyl alcohol. Okay, 
That is the process of winemaking. Now, here is the question for you. According to John chapter 2, well, and what's the other part of this? Does this happen instantaneously? Is this like mixing, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Pepper and Coke and getting a suicide? No, it's not that instantaneous. It takes time. It takes time. It takes time. It takes time for those little bugs. They're not bugs. To convert that sugar into alcohol. Sometimes days, weeks. Okay. Now, for the best wine, that is a long process. And what we, we get a clue from John is that the, the guests drank that wine. It was delicious. It was the best wine. The best wine is aged, okay? It's, it's aged in, you know, a variety of containers. It can be, oak, you know, modern-day oak barrels or wood barrels. They can add contents to it, but they take time for the, for the compounds. They're called tannins to break down to make this very smooth uh, taste. So it takes a lot of time. According to this, this miracle happened how quickly? Instantaneously. Instantaneously. So we have here, folks, an actual supernatural miracle, according to the author of John. There is no qualm about it, okay? Now, the other thing I want to talk about here is what he used to make the wine. What did you read from the text here that was used? The cleansing jars, not yes. what wine is usually made in. Tell me what you know about cleansing jars, if you know anything about this. So how big were they, first of all? 20 to 30 gallons. These are big. These are big, folks. They're huge. How many? Six of them. Six. So these jars, these jugs, clay probably, or stone, um, would have been placed at the entrances of this, this you know, banquet hall, home, what have you. They would be filled with water. And cleansing kind of implies what? What, what are these being used for? Mm -mm, not baptism. It's like ceremonially washed before you eat. Yes, this is it. As, as a uh, pious Jew, or even a Gentile of the time period, would know, they, they were on to something scientifically, that <clears throat> in order to eat and not get sick, <laughs> it was often observed that people would wash their hands before they did that, before they prepared food, before they ate food. Now, in the Jewish sense, this was a very religious aspect, but the idea was that this was filled with water, and as the guests... Uh, or hosts came in, they would dip their hands in, they would wash it, they wash their hands off. Okay, ceremonial cleansing jars. What happens to a jar full of water as people are washing their hands in it? This is probably the nastiest <laughs> crap you've ever seen here. Okay, you would expect sludge at the bottom, you would expect this is dirty, nasty water. Now, of course, at some period they would refresh that because then it's not very cleansing, of course. But, but remember over time, as this is dumped out and refilled, this is, this is not a clean thing. Okay. What does Jesus use to turn water into wine? Does he start with something new and fresh and clean? He just asks them to go fill them up. Okay. So, so they go fill it up. So it's, it's fairly new water. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'm not sure where they got the water. We haven't, we haven't washed this in detergent. Yeah. So, right. so yeah. Using the old jars. He didn't tell them to wash them either. Right. Something old, dirty. And what does he do with it? He makes something new. And he doesn't make just make like wine; like he makes the best wine. Yes, dirty to the best <clears throat> new wine. What does this tell you about Jesus' power over the natural world? 
Now, some of us have read, if you've read the New Testament, there are many miracles, one of which, which is often cited to be one of the most magnificent, is Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when his disciples are sitting in the boat, there's a storm raging. Jesus actually falls asleep because he's so tired from preaching. And his disciples wake him up and say, teacher, teacher, don't you care that we're all going to die? Why don't you do something about this storm? Not really realizing he can do something about the storm. He wakes up and he's like, you people are bothering me, right? You know, what? you don't have no faith. He rebukes nature. He rebukes the storm. And what happens to the storm? instantly becomes calm. And the New Testament records that the disciples were so terrified by that. They were, they were absolutely out of their mind with terror that he had power over the natural world to control nature. Folks, this act of winemaking is no different. Jesus has just proved that he has power over nature. So that is one big significant. <clears throat> okay. Proves Jesus controls nature. Now, on its surface, that might be where you stop and say, okay, I get it. Jesus has power over the natural world. If you are a Christian and you believe in, in so-called supernatural activity, which could just mean for you that it's science unexplained, and that's kind of where I come from, that, that you might stop there. Sure, I get it. Jesus has control over the natural world. If he is God, he can do whatever he wants. But with Jesus, what do we know about Jesus? Does he always stop at the surface? <laughs> Yeah, so, so Angela, what do you think would be the deeper meaning here or for others? Um, Jesus can change you. Yes. <clears throat> As Lorna said. <laughs> yes, yes, very good, very good. Jesus can change people. And in the spiritual sense, the spiritual sense, what is he saying? He could take something old and make it new again. Now that can refer to a human being a broken, dirty, old, gross, unclean human being. What if the Pharisees were watching this? What if the priests were watching this? What is the signal to them? What else can Jesus change here? And this is a big one. This is the rebellion of Jesus. I'm worried about him taking over people following him instead of Okay. And why would they do that? Because if their path to salvation is legit, so a Jew would say, all I have to do is follow the Mosaic laws, I have to abide by the high priest, I have to do whatever he tells me, and every year I have to do this day of atonement where I sacrifice an animal to atone for my sins, but I have to keep doing that. Jesus is, is shooting a, a shot across their bow at this point to say what? What is Jesus saying about their religious dogma of the, of the period? <clears throat> Don't need to follow that, and you know the priests were the only way they knew what to do, who they learned from, and mm -hmm. so now they don't have to follow that. So, Jesus is, in a sense, transforming <coughs> the path to God. He is saying. I am capable of taking old religious ways and remaking them. And you just thought it was water into wine. <laughs> what, do you, what do you all think about this? Is this true? Do you believe this? Yeah, he says <clears throat> that he tells Mary, it's, my, it's not my time yet. Yeah. Like, 
coming, but mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, I guess it is. So let's talk about that for a second. <clears throat> According to the author of John, this is Jesus' first sign. So what does that tell you about the last, let's say, 30 years of his life? How many miracles has he been performing? It, it implies zero. But it also mm -hmm. implies ahead. that she knew. Ah, that yes. And why would she know if you read Luke? Because she stored up things in her heart. Yeah. So she, was, she was told by the angel that, <coughs> excuse me, what is my voice saying? She was told by the angel uh, before his birth who he was. Yeah. And then the, when the Magi came, it says that she stored up these things in her heart. And then we have the example also of a sample. Yep. When he gets left behind, yeah. she sits, you know, he tells his parents that, <coughs> why are you bugging me? I'm doing nice. my father's work. Nice. So we have a past history recorded where people have announced to Mary and to and you know to others that this this boy is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be very special. He's going to redeem his people. Now, if you are a Jew, a pious Jew of the first century, your first thought about a Messiah is what? Who is this person going to be? So, Nathan's raising his fist. What does that mean? Mighty, mighty warrior, soldier. Yes. They're going to be a great military commander who's going to overthrow their oppressor. And in this case, who is the oppressor? Rome. Rome. The oppressor is Rome. Now, and, and, and to belabor the point, it doesn't appear as though Jesus has performed any miracles up until this point, okay? Meaning supernatural acts. <clears throat> Which, you know, if you were to talk to a Jew of the first century, they may not even say that was part of what the, the Messiah was going to do. You might get two different schools of thought. Some would say, yes, they might act, you know, in, God might act through them to perform certain miraculous feats, feats. But, but this, you know, these people were thinking this was just a military commander, someone who was going to be like King David, okay? A powerful king, but David didn't go around turning water into wine, Okay. <clears throat> Because Elijah was going to come before. Yes. So they probably think of all the signs and miracles were going to come yes. from someone else. Yeah, that's a good one. They think of the Messiah yes. being David, because it's always like the son of David, and so yeah, he's kind of there. So another one here, the Messiah will perform miracles. Now, getting back to this piece about the spiritual aspect, the spiritual like declaration of war, who is Jesus, in a sense, declaring war against here? Is it Rome? Who is he declaring war against here, in a sense? Jewish leaders, right? The Jewish leadership. If you are a Jew of the first century, you're thinking, what the heck is going on here? This is not what we expected, right? Not what we expected. So, yeah, go ahead. Can I debate your point that he was yes, transforming the path to God? Ooh, yeah, let's do that. Um, I don't know that he was necessarily saying, he was necessarily transforming it huh. in... I think he was, but not in the sense we immediately go to when we hear that mm -hmm. phrase. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I would argue that this is a symbol of the new covenant that, Ooh, okay. that God promised. Let's do that. You know, he's, more, he's more counteracting Let's do that. the perspective of the Pharisees, that they would earn their way to God, which God has never said was the way to get to him. I, I like that better. I, I agree with that, Nathan. I'm going to say it that way. Maybe that's probably a better way to say it, is that... Um, the old covenant is going away. The new covenant is here, and we would call a new covenant, New Testament, <clears throat> a new, a new contract, right? So I like that. 
I like that when Jesus says, it's not my time yet, yeah. his mom says, do what he tells you to do. <laughs> like She's yeah. like, and you're going to do it. Anyway. What does that tell you about Jesus? I, I think it tells us that Jesus like loves his family, and or loves his mother. And, like, you his know. family. I what? think that's a good, a good example of, like, you know, the, their most important commandment was yep. honoring your father and mother. Yep. Family knows kind of knows about Jesus. I'm going to write this one because we said this too. His family has some idea who Jesus is. Right? We just, his mom knows. Go, you know, go take care of this. Yeah. She knows what he can do. She asks him, he says, oh, it's not my time. But then she says, just you know, do what he says. Why did he say it's not my time? This is a big one. What does that mean? And it, it kind of alludes to it later in the very end. I don't know if we've read it yet. It says he showed his glory and his followers believed in Yeah. Here. <clears throat> yeah, let me see here. Yeah, okay. So we'll read we'll read more about this at the end, but go ahead. Why do you think he's saying this? Say that again. Did you say something? You said something. Well, I've just said so I'm showing So he had disciples already? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we've skipped a little bit ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he had to perform miracles. He just called people to follow him. Now, um, if you were, if you were in the Jordan River, well, first of all, remember this: having disciples doesn't mean that you perform some magic trick to win them to your side. Now, remember, John the Baptist is baptizing people. He has a number of disciples. Some of them become Jesus' disciples. At that point, John has not performed miracles. John the Baptist, but everyone saw who was watching, at least we could say John the Baptist saw, maybe others saw it too. A miraculous event happened when Jesus was baptized. What was that? Yeah. The Holy Spirit of God came down. That was, that was, that was the Spirit coming upon him. This was him doing. That's the point. That's the key point. And he had God's voice saying, this is my son. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't have the 12 disciples yet. He hasn't called his 12 at this point. It's, okay, it's a good point. So reconstructing the past. He has some disciples at this point. He, you have to remember, the Gospels are not written like play-by-play legal narrations of tell me where you were on this night at this date at this hour. You have to understand that what we have here is fragmentary reconstructions of a man who is writing probably about 50, 60, 70 years in his own past, right? So he's going to tell you some things. At this point, we know Jesus has some disciples. I don't, I don't know necessarily that he has all 12 at this point, according to John. You have to remember, too, that Jesus' ministry kind of starts and stops. He starts some of his disciples follow him for a time. Then Jesus leaves, and they go their separate ways for a while. And about a year later, they all get back together again. So there's kind of this off and on thing. But long story short is, we know he has some disciples at this point. Um, let me write that down, too. We know he has some disciples. And so disciples meaning just kind of his followers. Yeah. Any, any generic Mathetes. It's the shirt I wear. Yeah. They're, 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 they're disciples, or they are um, students. Yeah. They're following a teacher. So not necessarily the 12. The yes, that's follow. another good point. So Jesus, uh, he had more than just 12 close disciples. He had a number of other followers. Some came and went, depending on what Jesus was saying. Okay, So he has some disciples at this point. 
What else do we know about Jesus? We got a clue in here about his family. Who's still alive at this point? He has mom. He has brothers. <clears throat> Later we'll learn the names of four of them. Later we'll learn that he has sisters as well. So we know he has a family group. Um, we don't hear anything about his father at this point. So if you read the, the Gospels, no mention is made of Jesus' father, Joseph, after the age of 12, which is when he, they found him in the temple. It suggests that Joseph is no longer alive at this point, but that's, that's suggestive. We don't really know for sure. One All right. about the, uh, the spirit yeah. descending upon him, the, the Jews would have known, would have heard you know, Old Testament accounts of yeah. the spirit coming down, glory and glory coming upon people, but it left. Yes, one, that's a good one. This, this shows that it, that, that mm-hmm. stayed. Well, yep. Spirit well, remains. And that's from chapter 1, but, but yes, obviously by his performing this miracle, and, and we would say that's through God's Holy Spirit, the power of his Spirit, it's, it, the Spirit is remaining on him. I mean, it, it, yeah, it says, and John says that it remains, but mm-hmm. the people observing that baptism, mm-hmm. you know, they just recognize that, it's, that he still has that glory. Right, right. yeah, it's stuck on him. So we don't know exactly who saw, outside of John, right. who saw that the mm-hmm. Spirit descended on him. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. Yes. Later, we'll, there will be a transfiguration, and, and um, uh, Peter, James, and John will see it, so on and so forth. There is a kind of physical radiance about him. Um, what else? Anything else we know about Jesus at this point? I want to get back to that point about my time has not yet come. Let's talk. Just what do you think that means? We'll read the next passage here, and it'll help clarify a little bit. What do you know about Jesus? For those of you who have read the New Testament in the past, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus kind of goes out of his way to not, not really tell large crowds who he really is. Do you remember that? Okay. So that's what I'm getting at with this whole he thing. Like, <coughs> as soon as he starts ministering, the time, the clock starts between yep. him annoying the Pharisees enough that they're yep. going to kill him. And he yep. knows that there's a proper time for that to happen. This is it. This is it. By performing this miracle publicly, he is starting the clock ticking, in a sense, of a countdown to a confrontation that has been preordained by God to say, Jesus will upset the apple cart enough with this new covenant that God knows they're ruling Jewish leadership will have him killed, have him executed for that. Now, Jesus goes out of his way initially, and and if you think about that, the more people that know about who I am and what I am, the faster I'm getting to that end, right? The faster I'm getting there. He's at a very public wedding ceremony here, right? It implies that Jesus' ministry in the beginning is what? What does Jesus' ministry in the beginning tend to be? Is it, is it, is it Joel Osteen? <laughs> now, no offense to Joel Osteen, but, you know, is it, is it getting on a, what is it? I said, if you're watching Joel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, yeah, very private. In, in yeah. Home. Let's talk about that. Small groups. Focus on private ministry. This is it. 
This is it. I am going to talk to people one-on-one. -on -one. A lot of his interactions with his disciples are one-on-one, -on -one, two two-on-one, right? Come talk to me. I want to talk to you about who I am and, and who I think you can be. Follow me. He doesn't go on top of the mountaintop with the very first disciples and say, all of you out there that want to follow me, come. he goes individually, face-to-face. -face. What does this imply about your spiritual walk with Jesus? Personal relationship. Personal. It's personal. God, in the Old Testament, God of other religions tends to be very public. Mass, mass rally object, if you want to, like the 20th century artistic term for this, the mass rally object. The, the great dictator or the great leader on top of a, a building shouting, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, getting worked up into a frenzy and everyone follows that, that, that leader or that government. Here, this is completely different. This is one-on-one this is -on -one personal. One more clue here. Actually, we're going to talk about it in the next next chapter, so we'll get there, but... When he changed water into wine, he let the groom take credit for it. He didn't take credit for it. Because mm. they said usually they save the, yeah. the good wine for last, but he... Okay. Wine. Maybe a deflection of, of credit here. Jesus, obviously, his family is close with the hosts of this, and that's why his mom is so concerned with this, so... I can, I can see that a little bit. Well, let's say it this way. I'm going to, and maybe this is controversial, deflection of praise for the, for the larger group. The people who obviously saw this happen. In other miracles, uh -huh. he would say, like, don't go tell anybody about this. Yes. But in this case, he didn't say anything. He just kind of... He knew that only like the people who filled the water mm -hmm. really knew what happened. Who are the people that are filling the water, by the way? <laughs> they are, and servants is such a, Dallas, Dallas, the Dalloy. These are slaves, folks. These are slaves or they are hired servants. How low on the totem pole are these people? <laughs> you thought Jesus and his group was low. Now they're giving orders, okay? Jesus' personal, private ministry starts with who? Yeah, it starts with the lowest in society. And like that's like the coolest thing about Jesus is it's always the unexpected. Like the people who find out they can yeah. do miracles first are like the people who everyone else yeah. doesn't. They have no value. Yeah. Really, you know. Yeah. Herod. Herod. Later, um, the second Herod, when he brings Jesus before him and he's on trial and Pilate has sent him to Herod to say, what do you want to do with this guy? Herod actually says, Jesus, I've heard these great things about you. Perform miracles for me. And Jesus is basically like gives him the equivalent of the finger in a religious <laughs> sense, right? The religious finger. He's like, I'm not doing any miracles for you. Who is Jesus doing miracles for? The poor. Those that need it, yes, and those who are receptive to it. Those who are receptive. To and it, I find it interesting that he doesn't. He tells them, "Now go away and don't tell anybody." Yeah. But you know, people are going to be asking, "Hey, are you couldn't walk yet? What are you doing walking?" But I, I love that picture that it's not. If I'm in your face huh? telling you about something, or if you ask me, you're going to receive what I have to say. If you ask me, mm -hmm. rather than me just coming and telling you. I see. So there's a certain element of, of someone has to take the initiative to ask, is what you're saying. Maybe? No? Yeah, that's okay. exactly what I'm saying. Now, I, I tread lightly on that because, yeah. you know, go and make disciples. Right. We're supposed to just walk around until somebody comes and says, hey, will you mm -hmm. 
make me a disciple. Mm -hmm. Be careful what okay. Yeah. But, it's a good. But I see. I mean, that's kind of what I see. Jesus. Nice. I like that. Okay. Let's go ahead. We're going to the second part of John chapter two. We're going to read verses twelve to the end, which is twenty-five. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he, was, for he himself knew what was in man. Thank you. So if you are a student of the New Testament, the clearing of the temple has been reported by the synoptic authors when in Jesus' ministry? During the last few days of his life. The last few days of his life. Some would argue that was the final straw that broke the camel's back to get him executed. He walks into the temple and he starts overturning the tables. He makes cords and whips out of rope and starts whipping the animals to get them out. According to John, the author of John, when does this happen? The beginning of his ministry. So here we have evidence. Jesus has been in Judea before. Now, if you, if you read the synoptics, the beginning of Jesus' ministry tends to focus on which region of Israel? <clears throat> Galilee. Galilee. He, he draws... Eleven of the twelve disciples are from Galilee. Only Judas Iscariot is from uh, Idumea, which is essentially down here. This is a Galilean ministry, but it turns out that Jesus spent some time in Judea first during the first part of his ministry. So he's, let's write it here. Um, beginning. And we know that he clears the temple twice, at least twice. <coughs> Second at end of ministry. How do you think that went over with the religious leadership? <coughs> like they paid good rent for the table. That's kind of it. What do you think all this is doing? It's generating a huge amount of income for the temple. So, got a lot to unpack here. What is the temple? I've drawn this before. So, Solomon's temple is the first temple built. God told Solomon, you will build this temple. David wanted to build it, but God said, you can't build the temple because you have been too, too involved in all of the blood, bloody wars 
of conquest of Canaan and of Israel. So I'm going to have your son Solomon do that. Solomon builds the first permanent structure or temple, one temple, in Jerusalem. <clears throat> That's called the first temple. The first temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Okay, here's 100 BC, it's so way back. Okay, about 100 years later, um, refugees return from Persia and from, and from Babylon, and they rebuild the temple, and it's called the second temple. The second temple built probably on the site, the same site as Solomon built his. The second temple was inferior probably in every way to Solomon's temple. Solomon was a great king, he had great wealth and great stability. When the refugees return from, from Persia and Babylon, they are poor. Um, they get some money from the government to do this, but you know it's recorded in, in Ezra and, and um, Nehemiah that people looked at this temple weeping because the old men realized this was nothing, this was a shadow of its former self. So the second temple is built right around 515 BC. And again, inferior. By the time Herod the Great comes on the scene, <clears throat> in the late first century BC, BC, he decides to rebuild it, okay? He is wealthy, he has a lot of connections in Rome, he's a very powerful ruler of this region, and so he essentially rebuilds the temple for the third time. So although it's called the second temple, it's actually the third iteration of it. Now Herod, being the grand king he was, massively rebuilds this thing, okay? And as it turns out, by the time he's finished, he starts somewhere around 16 BC. Now here's a clue as to when Jesus was alive on earth. Herod starts building the temple somewhere around 16 to 20 BC, okay? <clears throat> he actually turns it into the biggest religious temple in the world at the time. Now I want you to understand what I mean by that statement, which might seem weird. We're talking about a period in which the Acropolis is, is in existence. The great Greek temples of the period have been built. The great Roman temples have, have been built. And even so, given that, Herod builds the biggest temple in the world. Okay, so let that sink in. Herod yeah. was a Jew? Herod was a Jew. Here was a Jew. Shish. <laughs> <laughs> Jew. Like many of us are Christians. You know, you get it. When they built the second temple, some of them that were alive when the first temple was built cried yeah, because it wasn't near what the first temple was. Exactly. And, and because of that, Herod did not want to be outdone. He did not want to be the ruler of this land with this tiny and significant crumbling temple. And of course, by this period, it's also been, the second temple has also been around for like four or five hundred years. He rebuilds this massive area. Now, it's important to kind of understand the layout, so I'll draw this from time to time. Temple actually includes several concentric rings, if you want to say that, of kind of essentially a snapshot of society. The largest area, and if you look today at a picture of modern day Jerusalem, you can go and look at the old city, and you will see the, the Temple Mount, essentially, where um, the Dome of the Rock is built. This is a, this is a Muslim <coughs> mosque. It is built, not accidentally, right on the spot, okay, right where the, the old temple was. If you look at a, at a satellite picture of that, you can still see the outline of the massive foundation that the old temple was built on. In fact, the Wailing Wall that you guys have heard about, the Wailing Wall, this is where Jews go to pray 
to take pieces of paper and write prayers on them and slip them into the cracks. That's the foundation. They are literally putting that into the foundation of the old temple. And you can see just how massive this is. This giant area is called the Court of Gentiles. What is a Gentile? That's us. That's non-Jews. Yeah. People are non-Jewish. <coughs> this is where all of that, that market activity is happening. This is where there's cows, there's sheep, there's, there's, there's pigeons, doves. You can buy pretty much anything you want. A lot of that was revolving around the sacrifice. So if you came to Jerusalem as a pilgrim and you wanted to make your sacrifice to atone for your sins, you could buy a living thing from the market here. But who was profiting? Yeah, the priests were. <coughs> now, if you're a good, no well, good. If you're a Gentile, you can you can mingle in this area, and it's a massive area. Only if you are a Jew can you now enter the temple courtyard proper. And we call that. There's another name for that is the court of women, because now again, this is a snapshot of society. Who is the most important on the rung of Jewish religious society? Well, the lowest is us, people who are non-Jewish. Then women are the next lowest, because they can enter into this. There was a sign posted here, and this is the only thing the Jews could get away with in inflicting the death penalty without Rome's intervention, and that is if a Gentile were to pass into the courtyard of, of the women or, or of the Jews, the priest could kill you. They could, they could execute you on the spot for that death penalty. But once you're in here, you're Jewish. So here we have the courtyard of women, then we have the next higher up rung is the men, courtyard of men. And this is the last place you could go if you were just kind of a regular Jew. If you're a priest, you can now enter into the actual temple building itself. And if you look at, uh, if you Google this, you can see reconstructions of the way we think it looked. There's this kind of tall, kind of rectangular building. Priests could enter into there, and of course that was subdivided into the room with the menorah or the lampstands, the table with the showbread. Um, and beyond that, beyond a curtain covering a physical partition wall, was the Holy of Holies. What in the first temple was kept in the Holy of Holies? Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant. Which contained what? Manna and the Ten Commandments. At least at some point, manna, a jar of manna. The Ten Commandments, the actual Ten Commandments from Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's true. <laughs> well, not Raiders of the Lost Ark, but... And probably the rod of Aaron that budded miraculously. At some point, the rod of Aaron and the manna are lost. Only the Ten Commandments remain, and at some point, the ark is lost. That was a big diversion. Anyway, so what do we have here? So this is where Jesus is driving them out. A clue to when Jesus is alive is in this comment that, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. Now, what they mean there is the third temple. And if you count from 16 BC, what is 46 years? Here's a clue as to when Jesus was alive and doing his ministry, somewhere around 30 AD. There's another comment in here about the Passover. Jesus went down, or I'm sorry, it says it up, right? He went up to Jerusalem. Why do, are there directions backwards? Okay. The directions have nothing to do with north-south. <laughs> they, they, they didn't up? have maps. Well, they're really going when I say I'm going up, it is literal. Yeah. When I say I'm going up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on a hill. It's on a mountain, Mount Zion, right? Mount Moriah. Literally, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and when I go down, I'm going down. 
So they go down to, uh, where do they say, Capernaum, I guess? Or, I yeah. When they go up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, no matter where they come from, yeah. Yeah. because they didn't have maps that were all going yeah. south. Exactly. The same is true of Egypt. If you read the, the Old Testament, Upper Egypt yeah. is South Egypt because that was higher elevation. That's the mountains. Lower Egypt is North Egypt where the coast is. So that's a good point. <laughs> now here's another clue. It turns out this Passover that we've mentioned is the first of three Passovers mentioned in the, in the book of John. John alone records three Passovers, at least. This is another clue to the length of Jesus' ministry. How long does it take from one Passover to the next? One year. So if Jesus participates in at least three Passovers, his length of his ministry is at least how long? So here's, you wondered, how did they come up with all of it? How do you know it was 30 AD? How do you know it was three years? This is why we think that. Remember, the earth was flat still back then. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. A, an Egyptian, a Greco, yeah, actually as a Greek philosopher, Eratosthenes, figured out in this period the earth was round. And he did it through a very clever way. You want to know? No. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you anyway. It turns out that when the sun is shining on the earth, if the earth is flat, it will cast the same length of a shadow of a, if you have a, an obelisk or something tall that's a given height at the exact same time of day, which is like noon every day, it will cast the exact same length of shadow no matter where you are on the earth because the earth is flat. If the earth is round, that shadow will be longer the further away that you get. This is science, dude. This is, this is amazing. <laughs> if the earth is round, the length of that shadow will be longer. He had people sent to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, Greco-Roman Empire, and at noon on a given day, they all measured in a, an obelisk of a certain length how long the shadow was. And by that, he found out the earth is round. And he was actually able to calculate within a few hundred miles how big the earth was. Folks, don't believe what you see on TV. <laughs> people knew the earth was round. Okay. You never knew you'd get Eratosthenes. <laughs> okay, you, you mean it kind of metaphorically, and I agree with no, you. No, I knew that you would have an answer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. What's the regular site? Oh, this is, this is cool, right? Carl, this is Carl Sagan, dude. This is awesome. How many billions of years ago was that? Oh, stop. Uh, so what else do you take from this? So, so here he is driving out the money changers destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. That's a big one, right? That's a big one. Right off the bat. It's like he's already started off with, like, because Jesus doesn't speak literally, and they always take yes. him literally. Like when he says something about, like, um, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, and they're like, he's talking about this because we forgot the bread. <laughs> they're very literal about everything. Not always literal. He'll explain yeah. it. At one point, he gets really frustrated. He's like, fine, I'll tell you what this means, right? And he, he'll explain it. But then I like how it says that they go back and they re remember. Oh, yep. yeah. When he said he would rebuild it in three days, that's what he meant. Like, eventually it's revealed to them. But. Question. Um, just one. I, just I, I one. Um, for now. 
What what evidence do you see that indicates that this is a separate um, incident in the temple of dragging out the money changers from what's reported in the synoptics, rather than viewing it as as the author use the author using the story for a different purpose? So what are you getting at? And this is a good one. This is a good argument. What are you getting at? That it could be the same event, mm -hmm. but that the author of John is using it to say something different because they didn't necessarily believe in telling the story chronologically yep. as much as the intent of telling it. Yeah. And where have we seen that in the Bible? We just went through a whole series on a certain book where that exact thing happened. Where Where is that in the Bible? In general. Judges. Judges, almost certainly written out of order. What proof do I have? You're looking at it. And I think you have, to, you have to remember that so much of what we know here is we don't have all of the pieces. Yes, this could have been the same incident that he just decides to tell at the very beginning. Because he's talking about the Judean ministry, he's going to do this. Um, I don't remember, I don't think he talks about it at the end, does he? Let me look again. Look again. I don't think it's in here. Yeah, yeah. So John omits omits this from the end of his ministry. So it would add to your argument, or you know, it's it's let's let's call them hypotheses because there is no there is no certainty here. One is that this is that event at the end. He just put it chronologically at the beginning. But the rest of John tends to be chronological. So the other flip side of this argument is he does tend to be taking people. Mm -hmm chronologically through the life of Jesus. <clears throat> so you can have it both ways. The, the undisputed fact here is what? He did do it. It happened. It happened. <laughs> it happened. Um, so I think it's fair to say we leave it at that. And I think it's a good point, too, that people can get bogged down in arguing about certain details that don't matter. Mm -hmm. Did it happen once or twice? It could have happened three times. Remember, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. He could have gone to the Passover every year and done this. But just because the authors didn't record it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Here's Does another... It, oh, no, here comes this guy again. They're just waiting. They're sitting there like, ah, here he is <laughs> again. Here's another good point that illustrates this, this fact, which is how many other miracles, how many signs are there in John? How many miracles or, or miraculous signs are there? It's kind of a round number that we tend to use. Seven, Seven is kind of the common, even though there's like actually nine. Here you read what? Many, say yes, say it. When Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people believed in him because they saw the miracles he did. What verse is that? That's 23. Many other, and I'm going to say miracles and events and even at the end of the Gospels, you'll read, there were many other events that <coughs> happened here, but if we were to write them down, they, would, you know, they could fill all the books of this and that. There are obviously many other miracles and events that are happening that are not recorded in the Gospels. So it's important to kind of remember, and this is, this is good for us as students of the New Testament, just because the New Testament doesn't say something, don't assume it didn't happen. You have to be open-minded about. I, don't, uh, we, I think we tend to get in this mindset that all the books are, are chronological yeah. explaining. Yeah. You know, if I'm telling you about my mm -hmm. 20s, when I lived yep. in my 20s, I'm going to jump all over the place. Yep. 
You know, I'm not going to go, oh, when I was 20, I did this, and then, you know, six months later, and then I'm never going to tell a story chronologically. My wife has an amazing, she could do that. I couldn't. She could go chronologically. I couldn't. I had too many details. No, it's good. <laughs> we have a we have a we have a gospel for you to write. <laughs> what what take home? What what else do we have today? We'll kind of wrap up today. This is beginning of Jesus' really earthly ministry, and it starts potentially with a bang. I like how he ends it with Williams chapter two by saying like God knew or you know Jesus that Jesus knew what was in people's minds yeah. and their hearts. And he didn't need people to tell him. Mm. He just knew. I like that. So that just shows another character of Jesus. Like so, so we find out in the beginning of chapter two that he can, he has control over nature and stuff. And yeah. then, but he also actually knows people to their soul, basically. What does that tell you about your your redeemer, your Messiah, your King? Is he impersonal? Doesn't know you? Standoffish? And your heart. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I tend, when I read that, I thought, man, he knows how wicked I am. But that's not it. Mm -hmm. He knows my potential. Nice. It's nice. not just about he had to come and, you know, overturn the tables because man was so wicked. Mm -hmm. He had to overturn the tables mm -hmm. to the point that you're not. Mm -hmm. I like that. Okay. What do, you, uh, what do you make of it that he didn't entrust himself to them? Mm -hmm. like what, in what sense was he not entrusting himself to them? Good question. What do you think it means? I think it's coming under the judgment. <clears throat> like the constructive trust that's formed when you enter into a court. Mm -hmm. Okay. So allowing people to rule over him or make judgments about him, okay. What does it mean? He didn't reveal himself fully to them? Like, he's ah. not going to go tell everybody about mm -hmm. himself yet, like, fully. Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel I like it has something to do with how he said his time had not come yet. Yeah. So, he's kind of... When you, <coughs> entrust, yeah. when you entrust someone, you're going to mm -hmm. tell them all, tell them your deep mm -hmm. secrets or whatever. You're going to tell them all about mm -hmm. yourself. And he's not ready to do that yet, mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. That's what. Mm -hmm. I don't well, know. it's kind of like <laughs> when we were studying um, Genesis mm -hmm. and how it was like the slow path to knowing God. Yeah. Like God revealed Himself to mm -hmm. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob mm -hmm. in a slow way, like little parts of Him, so that they could. Because if He just like was, <coughs> here's all of my glory, you know, it's like overwhelming, right? And so Jesus is kind of doing that. He's sort of slowly revealing Himself, like. Yeah, you know he teaches them, and then you know at some point, then you know he doesn't have the transfiguration right right away. If that happens like later, and he doesn't even like kind of really allude to him being the Messiah until much later, you know, in his ministry. So if Jesus is patient with us, and he looks at our potential, not just at our flaws, and he gives us time to learn and grow, what does that say about what we should be doing in this world with other non-Christians? We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us.